0: Hello and welcome back to episode four of In Conversation with, and I'm joined tonight once again by the ever charming Exerbia. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hello, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, yeah, super. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, all good. That's
0: good. Um, I suppose lots have changed in the world since we'd last uh, had our conversation together.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just a touch, just a touch. I'd. Uh... Well yeah, including um, messing up the first version of this podcast, I guess, yeah. There's there's always some there's that, that first catastrophe uh, on the pile yeah, of was...
0: <laughs> just just uh so everyone's aware who's <laughs> listening at the minute. Um we did have another version of this podcast that we've recorded and it went brilliantly. And then one of us wasn't recording it. So Yeah, Mr Verse. Yeah, what's wrong with you, man? Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, I job. apologize. You
1: have, you have one job. I fucked up big time. I'm very sorry about that. I uh yeah, that was Big screw up on my part.
0: Well, hopefully we learn from our mistakes. That's what mistakes are for anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the royal we. The royal we, yeah, absolutely. The royal we. Yeah, sure. Hopefully I do, (laughs) yeah.
0: Well, anyway, um, before we get into the discussion for today, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to those who listened to the previous podcast we did on all the different platforms, whether you watched on YouTube or Spotify. I never in a million years imagined there would be such positive feedback, and there were some fantastic discussions we saw going on in the comments um also a small thank you or big thank you sorry for picking up and correcting all our many errors that we definitely made (laughs) indeed in that podcast we'd be nothing without you um but yeah so tonight we'll be discussing transhumanism but before we get into that i think we should just have a brief mention about some of the slightly more contentious things we were talking about in the previous episode so one of the massive things I'm sure you noticed from the discussion was this debate that was going on over first and third person dreaming.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that was my that was my second screw up. Okay, yeah, yeah, indeed, yes, yeah, quite. I, 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 I thought people were very they were very civil about this, but they were almost unanimously in agreement that that it was possible to to dream in the third person. I think. Eh?
0: Yeah, well, this is something I found quite weird because I found myself agreeing with you in that I'd only ever. Or at least from what I could recollect, i had only had dreams in the first person. I found it massively like weird that so many other people had experiences with third person dreaming.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you still you still staunchly on on my side with this one. Uh, so you 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 haven't had this kind of out of body dreaming experience. I only say it out of jealousy. I just wish I wish I had at some point to be honest.
0: No. Yeah. Me too. I mean, mm. I can only talk about my uh, personal experience, mm. but from all the experiences i've had i can never recollect dreaming in a sort of outer body god's eye view
1: yeah well but we 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 seem to be the minority here in fairness um interestingly yeah Yeah, that is true yeah well maybe (laughs)
0: we're just weird then
1: yeah (laughs) all right that sounds sounds that's the obvious conclusion to draw from that i'll go with that one yeah that sounds good
0: and the second major thing i wanted to just touch on a little bit before we uh dive into our discussion for tonight was there was a slight bit of confusion around the Max Tegmark's free will argument, and so I've uh, I've got the book, I've highlighted the section, I've just paraphrased it slightly, so I'll just read out this little excerpt, and hopefully it clears things up for those who were a bit confused. Um, he says this, Free will discussions usually centre around a struggle to reconcile our goal-oriented decision-making behaviour with the laws of physics. If you're choosing between, I asked her out on a date because I really liked her, or my particles made me do it, moving in accordance to the lord of physics, then which one's correct? Well, Max Tegmark wants to say that both are correct. What feels like goal-oriented behavior can emerge from goalless deterministic laws of physics. Just like it's impossible to determine what a computer program will do until you run it, it's typically impossible for you to figure out what you'll decide to do in a second, in less than a second, which reinforces your experience of having free will both biological and artificial consciousnesses feel that they have free will. They feel that it's really them who decide, and they can't predict with certainty what the decision will be until they finish thinking it through. Their subjective experience of free will is simply how their computations feel from the inside. They don't know the outcome of a computation until they finished it. That's what it means to say the computation is the decision. And hopefully that clears things up. I probably didn't explain it the best. It was, it's best if you go and uh, read the book Life 3.0. It's a fantastic book. Oh, but, uh, I, uh, I,
1: I thought your well. I thought your explanation was was bang on when we talked about it. Well, it was an idea I hadn't come across, and it, it certainly embedded itself in me. But I, I think that line there captures it so well. Their subjective experience of free will is simply how their computations feel from the inside. That's such a good line. Like, I mean, in terms of it's it's kind of compatibilism, right? Like the kind of perfect merger of free will and determinism. No?
0: Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. That's that's
0: touching on it, and that that excerpt was taken from. Kind of a few paragraphs worth of argument, and it was a bit complicated, so hopefully that untangles it a little bit
1: yeah indeed was there i didn't i didn't was some was there a lot of contention about that one
0: um there wasn't so much contention, there was a bit more confusion as to what um Max tegmark was on about oh, really
1: fair enough, fair enough yeah yeah indeed but it is pretty far out for sure,
0: oh yeah, definitely, so those little admin housekeeping bits out of the way, I think we should move on to tonight's discussion which is um transhumanism and yes. i don't really know how to introduce it really there's it's such a <laughs> massive concept with yeah. so many different attributes and everything um so i guess okay. uh i'll just give that one to you then how would you oh, define oh, transhumanism
1: thanks. thank thanks a bunch thank you so much for oh you're yeah, welcome I, <laughs> I guess uh in a in a soundbite it would be nice to be a robot i suppose or let's become robots but um yeah i suppose I, that's I, pretty good <laughs> I um I don't know enough about it to do even like a pseudo-academic introduction to it, but it I would say it it probably started with um with the religious myths of um, humans transcending to the godly realms, whether it be with the ancient Greeks with it. I to be honest, you could probably make an argument that Jesus was uh, a transhumanist. I suppose if you want to go a bit crazy with that one, that he, but then no, I suppose he he originated from heaven in the first place, so that that probably doesn't count. But in essence, yes, uh, the the long tradition now of humans thinking about using technology to alter the human condition to become cyborgs to become uploaded my um uploaded artificial entities you know um essentially the the theoretical side of of most good science fiction i'd say how about you so i can eventually throw that question back at you (laughs) what comes to your mind when you hear transhumanism
0: well i would say firstly that your definition was was very good it was very comprehensive (laughs) i don't think i could do it justice better than that but yeah it's just this basic idea of that's been going back uh you know since the beginnings of science since the beginnings of medicine humans wanting to kind of transcend themselves above the biological above the the physical really and become something greater like extend their um their their sense of what they can become Mm, um absolutely and i suppose that begs the question um How long humans have been modifying themselves with technology? So, I don't know. Where would you say it sort of starts?
1: Oh, I I mean, even I don't. I I, fire is always the kind of stereotypical answer to the first technology, isn't it? I don't know if we know. I don't know if we know that fire was. I'd I'd imagine it would be. Maybe there's some tool building that came before. Who knows? But in any case, maybe for a stock answer, you could say fire. Even I mean, that just was the Promethean game changer, wasn't it? For I and mean, that just seemed to have set us apart from the animals fairly early on that we could we could artificially create it you know and that must have really yeah, changed changed the game
0: i would say that was a definite starting point i think one of the other sort of major landmarks you could say was the development of language i don't know if that strictly yeah. counts as improving humanity but it it was something that then enabled us to go on to achieve yeah. these feats
1: and maybe i mean last in the last podcast we were talk i think we were talking about um Uh, what the sort of evolutionary incentive was to divide humans from the animal kingdom so much in terms of intelligence. And you have to kind of wonder that maybe language forced that a lot. Maybe we developed like an early linguistic kind of um, linguistic ability, developed like an early language sense. And it gave us some advantage and we just Kept improving it more and more and more, so it may have had some, like a may have been kind of a feedback loop where the brain expanded to keep up with this, so that we could handle even more gossip and blah blah blah. So I guess in that respect, it would be a, a technology, probably. Yeah.
0: yeah, I suppose so. I mean, that really lends into a definition of uh, kind of the origins of language that I really like from uh, Yuval Noah Harari, and he says that basically language allowed us to gossip and talk about things yeah. that weren't strictly physical and in front of us, and it gave us access. To all these concepts and ideas that weren't well, they literally weren't available to us before that.
1: Yeah. I think i I think we talked about this last time as well. And I think my 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 rebuttal was that I reckon we were probably using language to get laid. I think that was the but yeah, it's, <laughs> in either way you wanna you wanna go with this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it's, it's definitely one of the defining features, yeah, for sure. That that separates us from the, the animal kingdom. Well yeah, hey, that'd be a way cooler answer than fire for the for the earliest technology.
0: I find it quite interesting though that You see in all these ancient uh, stories and mythology, particularly perhaps emphasized in uh, the Greek myth of Prometheus, um, who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans. So he improved the human condition. That was, you know, if you want to call fire the cornerstone. And yet in Greek mythology, he was severely punished forever, in fact. (laughs) And I I just find that quite interesting as how this massive, you know, cornerstone for humanity was the taming of fire. And yet in all this mythology and all these ancient stories, it was it was punished.
1: Well, maybe. I I get a bit annoyed when people start trying to... I don't mean the this. it just reminds me, I get slightly annoyed sometimes when people try to read um, wisdom into some ancient stories, which is exactly what I'm about to do. That's why I say that as a caveat. But maybe there was some inbuilt um, moral in there that... They already recognised that technology could be a double-edged sword. Maybe they were trying to pass down this this something in the mythos. You, you know, I mean, they must have seen the the inherent uh, um, power of being a, fire, being able to burn cities to the ground. That must have been pretty fucking terrifying. You know, I mean, um, I d- yeah, maybe there maybe there was some moral in there about um, the the double-edged nature of technology. Like, uh, I whenever um, whenever there's kind of a cautionary tale about science uh I, I i usually bring up and everyone else seems to usually bring up the atomic bomb um or oh, sorry atom atom um the splitting of the atom rather sorry and nuclear fusion and nuclear fission but it probably did start with <laughs> with fire i mean if you can't keep a handle on this e- even as a prehistoric human you could that could be the end of your village you know so yeah maybe that maybe that's why they were telling the story i don't know yeah i'm sure you can trace
0: like a quite a direct ancestry from the splitting of the atom to taming fire all the way back in the day
1: Hey, that'd be that'd be a cool sci-fi story. Maybe yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I was just gonna say. I think that if the ancient Greeks, with all their you know cautionary tales and mythology, existed in the twenty-first century, I think they'd be absolutely mortified.
1: <laughs> yeah. Didn't. Why weren't you listening for God's sake? Like why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did we have to put it explicitly for you? Yeah. Maybe it was too vague for sure. Well, there's also the um. I, so, uh, sorry, I, I promised I wouldn't go on any rambling um, segues, but uh, I, did you see? Prometheus, this movie that came out a while ago, the kind of Alien sequel, I think. And oh, the the Ridley Scott one, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there was, I think it was like a promotional video that went with it that was up online. It was a kind of mock TED Talk done by Guy Pearce as the, was he the, was he something to do with the first, the Cor- Wayland yutani like the corporation and Alien or something? I can't remember. Yes, he was. I think he oh, was, was we- the founder. Wayland, that was it. That, yeah, 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 you're right, he was. And he he did this absolutely brilliant, in this mock TED Talk, he sort of goes through the 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 founding I think the founding inventions of mankind and and you know fire to gunpowder blah 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 but it is exactly that point of just how horribly deadly every every single um, my, a cornerstone invention of the, the human species has been so far yeah
0: yeah definitely so we've sort of talked a bit about the origins of tran- I don't know if you can call it transhumanism proper but the sort of where these ideas first came in humans to start. Mm modifying the natural world i think you could say that's, yeah, uh, that yeah that, fair... that's
1: definitely a fair definition yeah i think so
0: so going from the origins of this i think we can ask what is the end point for transhumanism what do they want to achieve mm. What what's their ultimate goal
1: yeah I, I i um i mean i wouldn't want to speak for for all of them of course but i i think in the same way as if you go into any political philosophy there are i've come across a fair few different schools of transhumanism so the school kind of close to my heart are the more sort of eco i they can i guess they grew out of the, the um, sort of sixties left wing I suppose the sort of more eco movement who would like to use um sort of uplift technologies i suppose transhuman technologies to try and eradicate the more unpleasant aspects of the human condition but I'm sure there's kind of the 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 anarchists as well and um I'm sure there's the the more i don't know neoliberal or whoever side of it who would like to use it to make us better what <laughs> better better um, traders of wares or something but um i i think to be honest that their their goals differ radically um depending on on which particular school they belong to um i personally and i'd certainly like to hear the same from you but if we could if we had to make if we had to triage what we might do with um coming technologies which might be a good idea to talk about first actually um i think it would be to try and mitigate to try and Modify the more unpleasant aspects of the of the human condition of um, physical suffering and, and mental suffering. I think we should definitely start there before we start trying to send our consciousness to the stars. But yeah, right back at you, man. What do you from from your understanding of all this? What what do you reckon the? I mean, at the base of it, what do you reckon the the transhumanists and those those cats are after?
0: If I can borrow a quote from Nick Bostrom, who I think is one of the founding members of transhumanism. You bet, yeah. Um, a- along with several others who we can get into later in the talk. Um, he says if human beings are constituted of matter obeying the same laws of physics that operate outside us then it should be in principle possible to learn to manipulate human nature in the same way that we manipulate Mm. external objects Mm. and I think that that sort of goes some way to explain how it's this idea of uh, taming the objective state of nature Mm. and uh, imposing this human element on it like the the universe isn't just something that exists out there that is just passive and mm. that we have no control over. It's something that we can actually learn to manipulate, and especially with regards to our our own biology. Yeah, It's something that we can actually tinker with and, and mess around with and, and see what we can do.
1: And it's it's strange to think it's universe modifying universe. I mean, ultimately, like that's the, yeah. that's the weird part. A um, universe trying to modify its own will, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's quite a weird thought to think about.
1: Well, yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. That's yeah, that's um, that's a grand quote. Well, um, the more I've been thinking about this recently, the more it scares the shit out of me that there's... um, the thing I'm most scared of is uh, feedback loops in more or less any um any human system. So um, I'm I'm fairly sure that we'll get to a crisis. It may be centuries away, but where you can imagine every time we invent um a new technology, it, it um with it comes a new need that it provides. So, for example, the current crisis of attention that we're living in at the moment, um, and the crisis of the age of misinformation, I suppose you could say, about social media, maybe some would say, um, this wouldn't, this didn't exist before uh, the internet. This didn't exist before mass communication. So with every technology, it brings a new, a new need, uh, something else that we need to be wary of, to be careful of, with the benefits. And I imagine that transhumanism in nature modifying itself, as we will be doing as transhumanists, I suppose, um, it's it's really hard to imagine what someone 150 years from now with all the um self modification technology they might have access to with also with the kind of promethean down, down downside of that is you know what i mean new problems they need to solve um new uh new threats that will come up you know but oh, i don't know like if, if there's some um some something in cyberpunk or whatever even in the sci-fi we have today that you can be you can have your uh, mind hacked remotely or something like that as a silly example you know, but you know what i mean
0: Yeah, it's this um, this sort of idea that, you know, once we learned how to split the atom, of course, we can use that to go on and make nuclear power, sustainable energy, (laughs) or we could go on and uh, make an atomic bomb. Decimate cities. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So it's this careful process of navigation and treading a fine line between um, going one direction that's potentially massively profitable for humankind. Mm. And then going down this radically other direction that might spell mankind's destruction yeah yeah
1: Yeah. well we we might need to look out for that one yeah for sure yeah
0: yeah well hopefully it's something that um appears to us and we can recognize it before it's too late (laughs) i mean
1: yeah well can i can i butt in and play pseudo host for a second and ask if if you had like a wish list of of transhuman technologies if if it was in an ideal world where engineering limitations just don't exist is there something you'd like to see for for yourself, selfishly, or for for humanity, selflessly, or, or whatever?
0: Um, if I can answer that in the negative.
1: Oh yeah, I My don't
0: think. <laughs> um, I don't think that it would be a positive thing to erase. I won't say suffering, but I'll say pain and maybe boredom, things mm. along those lines that we commonly perceive as negative. Mm. I think those are things that we, well. I think I've mentioned this in other podcasts I've done either on my channel or on another that I don't think this kind of idea of the hedonic treadmill is something that we can eradicate.
1: Oh okay so so not not just that we shouldn't but that you you think it's you think it's impossible to do this.
0: I personally think it's impossible. Mm. Um but let's assume that we can. Um I really don't see the benefit of a race that's completely happy and satisfied all the time, yeah. I think that completely eradicates any need for curiosity and creativity. Sure. I don't know what you think about that.
1: Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I, I guess there are... So um, I, I take most of my my stance on this from a philosopher called David Pierce, and I think it's the the hedonistic imperative, which I think you and I have chatted about before. Um, and he's advocating for the abolition of all it sounds really radical to say out loud i'm not necessarily pushing this but i find it quite inspiring um advocating for the abolition of all suffering on the planet across species um which is it sounds like a pretty crazy idea but his position is that you could potentially uh ratchet up the amount of i don't know bliss or euphoria that humans could experience without necessarily losing the um the negative i forget what he calls them the the, not the negative feels, but the the negative aspect. As you said, like boredom, for example. I mean, especially because um, boredom, uh, you know, dissatisfaction, um, feeling, uh, I don't know, uncomfortable, getting that gut sense that something is wrong, or even you could even argue like anxiety or depression or really unpleasant mental states. These probably began from an evolutionarily useful place. Like they were to try and signal to you that, you know, I mean, the the beneficial aspect of physical pain is obvious, right? If you've got your hand in a fire or something. It's just that most of these systems have run out of control. So in, we've got to the point where people might live in chronic pain, chronic physical pain, for no obvious reason besides a, um, a genetic abnormality or an injury or something like this. So probably most of these things, and like you were saying, boredom, uh, and sorry, the other the other qualities you listed, um, I'm, I'm sure they began from a good place, but it's just more, if we could either voluntar- voluntarily switch them off or modify them so that they're they're beneficial to being more creative but without feeling i mean (laughs) the state of the state of humans at the moment i would argue is not not that we're not doing our best in terms of um our evolutionary makeup i don't think like a lot of us do seem to be quite unhappy for quite a lot of the time and um if we could fix that technologically without the world going to hell that would certainly be pretty um well that'd be pretty utopian is, is what that would be and potentially really dangerous yeah yeah, I
0: broadly agree with you. I, I wouldn't say for a minute that just because it has been evolutionarily beneficial for us, mm. that that means it's beneficial now. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Maybe it's the case for some things, but as a blanket statement, I, I don't think that holds. Mm. Um, and yeah, I would, if we got to the stage with our technology where we could um, eradicate, I'll say, unnecessary human suffering, Yeah. then... I think I, I would be an advocate for that. Things like extreme anxiety, depression, mm. um, mental disorders, things like this. Just to, I don't want to say level the playing field, because that implies that some of them are qualitatively worse than others. Mm. But it, just to allow everyone to have an equal opportunity to pursue the good life as they saw fit, I would say that hey, is that, something I would be an advocate that's
1: for. Really, I think that's a really wise and really admirable way to put it. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's great, and they also it kind of seems to preserve a, a notion of personal liberty there as well. Yeah, I could get behind that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Though, I mean, to to throw it back, then um, another thing to worry about maybe as well that I I think this might be a, a possible solution to the Fermi paradox, at least in some case, uh, some cases of where why aren't there more aliens out there or any aliens apparently, as far as we can tell so far, is that you can imagine if you I mean if you if you had a button in front of you like one of those. Wasn't there some famous experiment with rats and and um, um, oh, uh, electrodes? Yeah, and I, this it sounds like this sounds like some popular myth, but I'm, I'm fairly sure there's some basis to it because that's that's a brilliant starting place for a story. But uh, rats that would that would generally opt for either, I guess, you know, cocaine cocaine water, or would opt for for pressing the the button that activates the electrode of the pleasure center of their brain over and over again, but. You have to wonder what happens if we did isolate, say, the molecular structure of bliss or we, we isolated how to produce long-lasting, undying bliss in the human brain. If we'd actually get a- anything done after that, I mean, if you could, I, d- I don't know if I'd stop pushing that button. If you can feel the best you've ever felt all day, constantly, and no external, um, you can see where I'm going with this already, but you would, how much interest would you really have in external, um, external pursuits, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I I definitely agree with you there. I I just think that if um, a mind is completely satisfied all the time, then it just eliminates any drive to become better or to do something interesting. Yeah,
1: and 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 you have n- and you have no kind of negative history or, or anything unpleasant to look back on that you want to avoid. Even as a you know basic pain avoidance mechanism, you don't have any emotional pain to look back on. So you know, <laughs> there's nothing to inform your future decisions.
0: Yeah, you could never really expand as a person and sort of stretch out to the limits of what you're capable of. Yeah. If you never have any bad experiences on which to draw from.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, hopefully we're both moderates in that regard. And that's good. That's good to know.
0: Yeah. So we've had a bit of a discussion about um, the origins of transhumanism, perhaps, um, and their goals and where we're headed. So I think we should Talk a bit about the uh, the actual technology. Mm. Um, how are we going to modify ourselves, and how are we going to improve ourselves? Mm. And I think you wanted to kick things off by mentioning Moore's Law.
1: Uh yeah, I'm I'm no expert on this at all. Um, it only comes from my days as a as a huge Kurzweil fan. So um, certainly my my prophet uh, about ten years ago or so was Ray Kurzweil, who I think he properly bro- he'd been around for ages before, but I think he properly broke through with a book called "The Singularity Is Near." where it was drawing together all these um, transhuman uh, ideologies, I suppose, transhuman threads. And quite a lot of it was built on Moore's Law, um, which I, I cannot remember. Off, I should have looked this up earlier. I can't remember off the top of my head. As I remember, it was something like it's the amount of computing power you can buy. This is going to get corrected so hard, but the amount of computing power you can buy for a dollar, I think, doubles every 18 months or something to that effect. But nevertheless, whatever the specifics were that I'm... Um, uh, too silly to remember, it was essentially that uh, computing power uh, begins ex- um, accelerating exponentially. The the amount you can purchase anyway every year, say, begins accelerating exponentially. So even though you can't necessarily predict what the technologies of the 2060s will be in their function, you can predict that we'll have X amount of computing power and it will be insanely powerful. And it's a bit like... Um, do you remember the story about the... Was it a Chinese emperor who... Um, I think someone had done done some some good deed and he said, what would you like in return? And some the smart-ass wise man or whoever said, um, I would like you to put a grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard and then two grains of rice on the second and keep going, doubling each time. And by the time you get to, you know, whatever, the the 40th or whatever it is, um, there won't be enough grains of rice that you could possibly put on this thing, you know. It would just be completely infeasible. So the computing power will get to that, that same... Um, that same state and uh it it, so transhumanism in that sense kind of became a a huge um dreaming chamber for all the possible things that we could do with that much computation at our fingertips if we could have um um little computers floating around inside of us um you know nanobots or whatever say they're the, the size of red blood cells that have more computing power individually than than i don't know 10 iphones or a million iphones or whatever it might be what would we potentially do to ourselves in that in that regard um, though, I should say, I should say, and I, I don't mean to um, throw shade on the guy, on Ray Kurzweil at all, but he made the interesting choice of making a bunch of specific predictions about um, what the next decades would be like. And I, I will shut up in a second, but um, it. Sorry, I'm just trying to. My feline is trying to, trying to attack me. Hey, chill out. Um, and he made some interesting predictions that were technologically feasible, but not. But politically, it didn't go that way. So I think by now, we're all, we're supposed to live in a paperless economy. So no one's really going to own books anymore. And um, sorry, my cat's tearing up the rug. No one's going to own books anymore. And e-readers will take over, blah, blah, blah. But we already know how that went, which is, I think, the e-reader market, as a silly example, saturated. Um, and I, for one, went back to books. I don't know about you. Um, but I just preferred the 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 texture of them. I, I like the feeling of when you finish a book and you can look back physically on how you actually persevere with something. So a lot of his, weirdly, a lot of his predictions seem to have been marged, not so much by where we got to now in the 2020s with computing power, but actually with how the human political situation turned out and how human preferences turned out, you know. Um, but, and it's that, again, another ridiculous side run. But sorry, yeah, over to you, Saruman.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where just because you can do something, it doesn't mean we necessarily Once again, will. you've put it so or... much better
1: than that. That's exactly it. Yes, that's exactly it.
0: <laughs> no, well, thank you um, But yeah, I mean I, d- I don't know what you think about this um, I think I vaguely remember reading somewhere that it was a, a couple of years ago now but I think it was the first year where um, the computing power of various uh, phones and laptops and things didn't conform to Moore's law Yeah. so maybe uh, maybe law is the wrong word for it maybe it's, it's more of a well, like, I don't know what you'd call it but I suppose that does beg the question. Um is there do you think an upper limit on our technology? Is there a point where we can reach I... where it's just so powerful and so efficient that we we have you know no idea what to do with it?
1: Oh okay like the the upper limit in terms of it just it just becomes so powerful that we we almost can't find a function for it in a way. Well, uh, Sorry, I suppose that was two separate questions. Oh no, that that's no, but that that'd be that'd be a really cool idea. But if it's if it's an upper limit on on um, Moore's law continuing and uh, actually getting to it, going and going into like the, um, uh, I think what's it called the AI winter, um, or whatever. Or I guess a transistor winter. I think there is some. Again, I'm not the expert, but I think there is some discussion that we're already there, um, because it's at the moment. Even though we've moved through different computational paradigms, so we were using vacuum tubes before we were using transistors. I think um i think there's there's now at least a predict there is every decade i think but there is now a predicted upper limit on the amount of i suppose the amount of transistors you can fit inside a certain space i'm a complete idiot about this i don't know but i often hear the rebuttal which i don't agree with that okay fine we'll find the upper limit with current transistor technology or whatever or current electronics but uh quantum computing will come along soon enough and blah 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 and that's why the the argument is kind of strange at least from Kurzweil that um I don't think it's just his argument, but that, that side of things, that you can, he's making out that you can track Moore's law before transistors and that you can ale- allegedly track Moore's law afterwards. And magically, not necessarily magically, but some new paradigm will turn up to carry on Moore's law, which is kind of weird because it sort of implies like some, you know, like the, what, what was it, like Hegel's spirit of history, you know, like something pushing humanity on. Yeah. It kind of feels the same that there's some like magic, some, uh, yeah some spiritual some magical computer demon that's pushing humanity further and further up and it will just keep giving us new technologies so no i i um there are some there are some great sci-fi stories about that where we we get to a point where we just yeah we do hit a wall and um no amount of of innovation will actually push us across it and that would i guess that would kill our in a way that would kill a lot of our dreams of of AI, um, of what we can do with neural nets, and especially more, the more exotic stuff like up, uploading minds, for example. If we just can't push over that limit, um, yeah, I think there's
0: definitely some truth in that claim, though, because just a cursory look back at the last sort of fifty years of computing, mm. and you start um, with these massive machines, and you know they they fill the size of a room, mm. they're ten tons heavy. Um, and they can only do simple calculations. Obviously, since then, yeah. uh, computers have become smaller and smaller. I mean, you see that fact uh, repeated online that there's more power in an iPhone than there was yeah. on the Apollo 11 yeah, that's it, yeah. uh, computers. In the whole of NASA, and, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And everything gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I wonder if there's a point where new technologies come in to replace um, our existing ones, like you mentioned, with quantum computing. Mm. And... Things start to get bigger again for a while, and then we learn to refine and we learn to make things more efficient, and it becomes smaller again. So I wonder <laughs> if there's this kind of cycle through history of things getting massive and then getting oh, tiny that again. Would,
1: that would make a that in that might make a fun a fun sci-fi story. the The museum of expanding and shrinking computers, where you just the modelled computers over history by just their size up until you get to the point of turning red red giants into computers or something like that. But yeah, no, that's that's um that's a really cool idea for sure. I I don't know too much about the next, the, like the more um, visionary paradigms for computing. I mean, I, I've heard some talk about DNA computing. Uh, I guess, do you know? Do you know much more about this than other directions we might go?
0: I've, I've read certain things about this. I don't know much about it, mm. but from what I understand, you can fit like terabytes worth of information into. You can code it into DNA down to this really really tiny scale. Yeah, um, and. So that would be one thing, and it would kind of uh, persist throughout time. Okay. They would have so much more longevity than our current computers, Uh and uh, it would be protected in in this format. I don't know if that's DNA or if I'm
1: confusing it with something else. I know that I know. There's some talk of doing that um, with crystallography, doing it with crystals. I think, uh, but man, there are a lot of very angry. Com- if there are computer scientists listening to this, I imagine they're very angry at this point at what we're doing to their field. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we can only apologise. Yeah, we're not experts in the field. No, we both we both humbly admit that. I hope. Yeah, indeed. yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: But yeah, I find that's that's quite a cool idea. Is because um, you know people always talk about DNA being the kind of the coding blocks for animals and, mm. and humans and the various creatures it creates and everything mm. and it's kind of going full circle where the universe kind of coded these instructions into our dna to make us what we are to make us human <laughs> with all our um you know biological functioning and everything mm. and then we've sort of gone full circle to use uh the universe's <laughs> yeah. own trick yeah and then code things using dna uh into
1: these little computers well i i don't because um, um, as well as a computer scientist, I'm also not a geneticist. But I, I, uh, I wonder how op- optimal DNA is as a, as a computing computational substrate or whatever. Because if it turned out to be extremely optimal, I have no idea. But if it did, that would certainly be another, um, another point for nature that she somehow discovered an extremely efficient mode of, um, at least encoding information. And considering how miniaturized it is, it certainly seems pretty, pretty efficient. Um, except for all the the junk DNA and the errors and whatnot. Um but, yeah, and also, I guess likewise, if there are other species out there, if they're using very different um different systems to us for that aren't even proteins or some other code of life or something like that, but yeah, it is strange that I was going to say the universe reaching around, but that's perhaps not the right, not quite the right word there, but um humans turning back on ourselves to use our own technology built in, yeah, yeah, absolutely,
0: well, just to a take just to uh assume a physicalist viewpoint for a second. Mm um if we assume that um everything about our uh biology and about our DNA can explain all of who we are as humans mm. um then if DNA can give rise to something like consciousness mm-hmm. in terms of the subjective sense then I would say that's a, a point in favor of DNA being massively um efficient as a computational we, substrate as you yeah.
1: say well it's, it's I mean you're you're, you're absolutely right it's, it's- unless there is more in the source that we don't know about and that's I guess a, 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 we've already done that one a bit um, yeah they, it's miraculous that it can give give rise to conscious brains yeah I mean that's absolutely crazy um, certainly currently silicon can't do that as far as we're aware yeah you're absolutely right
0: maybe all we need maybe the reason we can't um, create a mind using silicon create a truly conscious artificial intelligence is because what's needed is this biological substrate instead maybe we've been yeah. looking in the wrong direction maybe that's the direction we'll um end up going in the future maybe uh quantum computing is just uh uh it's, it's what we think is the the future now but in reality maybe you know thousands of years down the line we'll end up uh with biological computers
1: yeah hey that would be that would be wonderful it would be so unexpected as well um with our current visions of the future i i should say as a caveat by the way i don't um i know that con- um, quantum computing as it stands today um, it, I think it is extremely um, application specific. So it's not that we'll end up with. I'm not saying this at you. I just mean uh, because I, I feel like it rarely gets brought up in these conversations. Um, when when I when someone whips out the quantum computing card like I did earlier, in that it doesn't seem to be a miraculous. Um, Um, improvement on our current computational technologies rather it it, it might be i don't know in 50 years or something that you have a little quantum computing unit that can sort through lists incredibly fast or whatever but it it will be a supplement i think the the way it's going anyway to current computation but yes where are you going with the the um, biological um computing question it reminds apologies for the third time for the segue but it reminds me of um a book by um you know roger penrose the physicist. Yes. Yeah, um, he wrote a book, a book called The Emperor's New Mind, I think it was called. And um, he was arguing with, the, uh, I think the co-author was a, an anesthesiologist, I think, from memory. Um, I hope he was. Anyway, uh, they were both arguing that consciousness is a result of, um, I think they're carbon nanotubes, I think. But essentially the consciousness was quantum mechanical. It was, it was um, quantum mechanical in nature. And that, I only say that because with you talking about um, us not actually being able to produce consciousness on computers, and since we're talking about transhumanism, we're probably going to go there anyway, I hope. Um, yeah, it, it, maybe it turns out that we just can't upload minds on silicon. And maybe, uh, like you said, the, the, the biological substrate is the only possible substrate to um, on, on which minds can be run, if you like. Um, but I don't know how you feel about that.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Actually, I hadn't quite connected the dots until you said it. Yeah, but, certainly
1: but, yeah maybe the reason
0: we're finding <laughs> uh maybe the reason we're finding it so difficult to create artificial intelligence and true artificial consciousness is because we're we're trying to do it on these um on the basis of silicon and uh quantum computing mm. if um, indeed quantum computing is applicable. Mm. Um, when in reality we're supposed to be doing it on uh biological substrates mm-hmm. but uh just to take the idea of mind uploading um to take a more philosophical conceptual approach to it mm. um if we agree that on the current route we're going down mind uploading is essentially useless <laughs> um <laughs> for, for lack of a better no, no, term no, 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 um, like it. perhaps all we can hope to do then is create an artificial copy um yeah. But would you say if we could hypothetically create a perfect copy of your mind and then upload that, um, would that copy still be you? And would you be happy to die in order for that copy to live on?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, I, I bet there's going to be in the next in, in this century, there's going to be a lot of cults based on this because it seems like it seems like the kind of transhuman version of the what was the um the whatever the ghastly cult was where they all drank Kool-Aid to um, go and ascend to the alien mothership or whatever you could imagine a cult based around scanning yourself oh no that that was that was the plot of a video game actually called solma which i highly recommend that yeah you would (laughs) you would you you would scan take your mind state copy or whatever and upload it and then kill your biological self so that the continuity continues yeah um I, i i would say as a as a little um get workaround to consciousness not necessarily being able to... Uh, that you couldn't reproduce on a, um, a silicon substrate, on a computational substrate. You could imagine, though, still, that you could... you could. sounds really silly, but you could upload a perfect simulation of... So you could model a biological construct, model your brain, even down to the atom in a perfect universe where you had infinite computational power, so that on a computer it was basically running in exactly the same fashion, a model of reality, if you like. And I don't know what the difference would be between... Um, base reality and computational reality because in, in, as far as the computer simulation is concerned it's still a biological thing so whatever the lim- all i mean is all the limits that's nuts but i just mean the limitations that we think there might be they may not be in computational space but um no i wouldn't to answer your question no i wouldn't trust that 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 was me to be totally honest because I i don't think there's there's preserved continuity um i think i'd arbitrarily say that continuity is preserved through like through spatial tracking i mean it's the same as that what's that that um i don't know if it's a myth but about your cells being every cell in your body except your neurons i think being replaced every seven years or so um yeah, and yeah. if if i don't know whatever it is there's going to be a set number if it's 14 years or you know 50 it doesn't really matter for the sake of the argument but you're certainly not most of the same cells that you were when you were 10 that's for sure. Um, so in a way, we've kind of already undergone that change. I don't know. How about you? I guess to, to put it a bit more crassly, does it scare the shit out of you? Because it scares the shit out of me. But yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, it does. I mean, there's philosophical workarounds. It depends really on what kind of uh, theory of identity you want to exactly, use. Yeah. Whether um, I probably favor the same one as you in that you have to you have to be able to trace a, uh, a straight line through space-time. But... Then again, there are other um, other theories. I can't quite remember the name of the guy who came up with them, but um, that allow for a broken line um, as long as it's kind of a perfect recreation sure. and the other one was destroyed. If it's made from like, you know, if you could theoretically deconstruct yourself to the atom and then reconstruct yourself um, in exactly the same configuration, mm. arguably that's still you, although I wouldn't really say so.
1: I guess the the first thing would be that as soon as you s- switch that pr- as soon as you activate that uploaded mind presumably they're going to start deviating from the biological version of you because they're going to be having different experiences so i guess in a way you'd be more like if you're still alive anyway you'd be more like um identical twins to begin with than the same person i suppose um but yeah i uh yeah, I don't know, and also not not to mention that presumably, if you were if you were living in a computer environment, if it, whatever utopia it was, you'd have, well, I don't know, would you would I guess you could choose to have um, a radically enhanced intelligence or to still have your human brain or whatever, but that would make a huge difference as well. You'd imagine. Um, I th- I th- I think you're going for like, um, is it called pattern pattern identity? That as long as as long as you're the same, as long as you're roughly the same kind of mind, and that you still have your memories, is that is that what you meant? That you're you could still be considered the same. Um, the same person
0: yeah it's this kind of idea like the um the transporter in star trek that like you're yeah. destroyed and then recreated oh, i
1: just that's my that's my nightmare how, how do people go along how, how would anyone go along with this even like even in a perfect future how would anyone step into that thing i don't get it it seems insane like it just seems horrible there, there was um well there was a really good when i was a bit younger uh, well, uh i used to listen to oh, it sounds so posh but like BBC Radio 4 do these, they used to do this, these afternoon plays, and there was a really good one years ago about um, in the future where there are teleporters, and everyone knows that you get destroyed on one end and recreated on the other to preserve continuity, Um, but a woman is taking her first trip abroad to Australia or something in the teleporter, and she's a bit nervous, and when she gets in, she's scanned, but as she's scanned, there's there's a, a bomb threat or something in the facility, and her copy gets is materialized on the other end but she isn't destroyed so it's kind of the perfect um, the perfect aquarium I guess for that that kind of you know that kind of question because you, you both claim personhood right you both you both feel that you have the, the right to live you both feel like you don't want to be murdered you know um, so yeah I don't know well I was going to say it, it reminds me slightly of it with the many worlds um, the many worlds interpretation in, in quantum mechanics if you could talk to the millions of versions of you living next to you in alternate realities you know um i I guess it's the same question do we consider them our siblings or you know just versions of ourselves that deviated in some other direction but anyway sorry yeah go on sorry
0: presumably at the point where she's recreated on the other side in that instant and only in that instant um they could be considered the same person because they have exactly the same memories and exactly the same everything else Mm. um from that moment on then it would start to deviate as they would experience different things and have different ideas and different thoughts so you couldn't really consider them as identical but even at that very first instant when she was recreated on the other side in australia um they're not identical because they're in a different space um yeah their their spatial location has changed, so yeah, I, I take massive issues with this. Um, I think you called it pattern tracking identity, but yeah, I much prefer the theory that says you have to have an unbroken continuous line. Um, what through through, through, space, s- time, through space to call yourself the same person?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm I think um, being on team human, I'd agree with that one, and it seems a lot less sc- <laughs> it seems a lot less scary, yeah, for sure. But it does. Um, I I don't want to to hijack this thing but it does then kind of raise the question as well say you know we we were we were able to make mind copies and upload them if this if this was possible um also like what rights you grant them do you do, do, if they behave like us do we give them human rights i mean do we actually afford these and i think i you know i talked about this before but can you can you switch them off at will i mean like this is that is that tantamount to murder or whatever because they they would presumably act like us they would presumably Have all the same interests and and social needs as we do. Um, They'd probably be, you know, orders of magnitude smarter if they wanted to be. If uh, presumably, yeah. I I wonder how our how our um, perception of human rights would change in that event. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, presumably they have the idea that they don't particularly want to be murdered. (laughs) Yeah. Or or to stop existing. Fashion.
1: Yeah, they're kind of into it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, would you call it murder? Uh, probably. <laughs> I mean, if it's if it's a a perfect duplicate or copy of your mind, mm. um, then yeah, I guess you would call it murder.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you would hope so. Otherwise, it would expose some really messed up holes in our <laughs> in our morality. I think if we didn't, if they act like humans and we're still happy to switch them off, it, we'd have to start asking ourselves some very pressing questions about how we how we deal with other humans though i i would say that the second that this becomes possible and the second that we have the second that we can confirm that we can do this that they really are uploaded versions of humans or whether they're ais or whatever but the, the second we can confirm they're conscious i think that's probably the end of the species i think that's probably going to be a very quiet doom day because i mean <laughs> they would just have such a radical advantage over the biological human population don't you think
0: well, this was another question I was uh, sort of hoping we'd naturally move on to. Mm. Is that, um, would we call them humans at all? Mm. Are they are they still considered human or are they, well, uh, to rephrase the question, are they the next stage in human evolution mm. or are they a new species entirely?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an idiot uh, teleologist. Teleologist, if that's the thing? I, I think there is a teleology. I think there's something pulling us from the end of time, not in a. Spiritual way necessarily, but I think probably when we look back, or when something looks back in a few thousand years, uh, biological. It sounds dark, and I don't want it to be true, but I can't help but think that it, it, Homo sapiens will have been a a useful, a, a very um, you know um, worthy of gratitude uh, species for shepherding in the next stage in the development of intelligence in the universe. Ultimately, so I think we're probably a very um, a, a very fine slice in the development of intelligence. Is that a bit too pessimistic? What do you think?
0: Um, well, I would kind of argue that it's it would be analogous to the way we look back at our ancient ancestors who were hunter-gatherers. Mm. It's not as if we look back on them and say, oh, they were so primitive. Oh, they didn't do this. They didn't do that. Mm. It's We sort of just passively regard them as a necessary stage in evolution and that we've improved from them now. Yeah. But then again, you know, with these um, uh, uploaded minds, or uh, I don't know if we we want to call them transhumans, hypothetically, they're orders of magnitude above um, our levels of intelligence now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it goes a bit beyond saying that this is just the next stage in our evolution. Mm. Um, Just to draw on um, a bit of philosophy, I think it was Wittgenstein that wrote about uh, your form of life. So it's kind of like Aristotle's idea of the soul, um, not in any uh, spiritual sense because Aristotle was a naturalist, um, but he argued that the human soul is the kind of the blueprint for what we are as a biological being mm. um, and all the things we're capable of if we so choose to do it and develop our virtues in the, in the uh, relevant sense. Mm. And then so uh, Wittgenstein's idea sort of builds on this that humans have a particular form of life. Other animals have a different form of life because they're different creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that these transhumans would be so radically different from us Mm -hmm. and so much higher on the intelligence scale. And they'd have so, so many different opportunities available to them, perhaps even, you know, a massive range of emotions that they could potentially feel that we could never dream about, Mm -hmm. um, i would say that qualifies them for having a different form of life and i would say they're a different species entirely
1: well and and presumably as well they would be the first species ever on the planet or off the planet uh that could mod- that that would have access to immediate self modification and so they the, i'm i'm not saying you were saying this but they they presumably wouldn't just be one homogenous species they could and a single individual could go over millions of iterations um, of themselves, change themselves millions of times over in the time it takes you and I to have a cup of tea. You know, to go go in and modify the the um, emotional blueprint of your own soul, essentially. You know, and and also to the scary part, I think, is that you could go in and modify again, presumably what you want to modify. So you could change your own will, you could change your own desires, and then God knows what happens then. You know, you you, you if you had like a, a society of of artefacts of um, of um, artificial minds, presumably they'd all be subspecies of their own, or millions of different species. It'd be pretty cool to live as an anthropologist in that society, I guess. Anyway, but um, but yeah, I'd, and also not to forget, I, I I'm completely on board with what you said. It's that's a great example about the difference between us and um, earlier humans and Neanderthals, well cousins anyway, or whoever. Um, but I would say not as a criticism at all. It's just what came into my head that. The difference between them and them and us is certainly a, a very massive temporal difference in that it took so long to get from them to us. Uh, but the intellectual difference doesn't seem to have been that huge. Whereas, like you said, the difference between us and whatever comes next, if things go in that direction, would just be it would be unimaginable. You know, it'd be unimaginable if you had access to that kind of computation as as a hybrid of your consciousness. You know, God knows what you. I mean that. Surely we'd just be slime by comparison, you know. Some, um, well, something, well, whatever, slightly glorified slime, glorified slime, slime with hats, you know. <laughs> Slimes with nice top hats and canes <laughs> yeah. and monocles. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that, if I yeah. could, if I could fire this one at you, that's that's kind of where I'm going with this. Is it the part that worries me about that is um, how I don't think we're particularly nice to our animal mates. Uh, so factory farming, as uh, one example. Uh, we don't seem to. We do feel some obligation globally towards um, towards mammals that can clearly feel pain and others, but we don't seem to feel it like that seriously. So, if more intelligence doesn't necessarily lead to being more passive or more compassionate, it's a bit worrying how our de- our you know digital descendants, whatever they might be, might view us. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always that um, that classic metaphor of we don't care about you know, the ants that we see on the ground, um, something that's so radically higher on the evolutionary ladder than we are. Mm. Um, why would they care about us? Should they care about us? (laughs) Or, you know, in, um, perhaps it, it comes along with having such a radically different level of intelligence that maybe they've got, um, some sort of sympathy for us. Maybe they'll treat us nicely. Mm. Maybe, maybe, um, Current homo sapiens will be sort of like uh, their pets or
1: something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we get to live in a nice transhuman zoo. Yeah. I and mean, all the beer we could possibly mm. drink. That would be nice. Yeah. For sure. Well, oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this a bit um, today while I was tidying up in anticipation of this conversation. And I was thinking a, a nice optimistic slant might be that for all I've just dissed humans for being such dicks to animals sometimes. We do have a benevolent streak um when it comes to well when it comes to our kids obviously and when it comes to ailing humans when it comes to um just animals on the planet there are plenty of folks out there who uh would gladly be kind to to mammals or whoever else um and you know the average person wouldn't want to mistreat a dog or a cat or um you know domesticated animals i don't i don't think they would anyway unless you're psychopathic so at least i don't know we've there's some proof in us, is what I mean, um, there's some road testing going on there that that intelligence can lead to um, high degrees of compassion. I would just hope that that the digital minds of the future or whoever would would have that in even more abundance, and wouldn't end up like the Borg or something. What, well, which also begs the question. I guess we we both keep using the pronoun they, like for that, for continuing to be individuals. Would they want to continue to be individuals? I mean, we only do this because it was probably useful for sexual diversity right like that seems to be why we're um yeah why we use the the mode of sex that we do because it it leads to uh, amazing changes evolutionarily and i wonder if they would do you reckon they would even i mean wouldn't there be an incentive to kind of amalgamate into like a a, a sort of collective organism you know resistance is futile etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: yeah like a like a hive mind kind of yeah. thing yeah yeah um yeah i don't know i mean i think us current humans with our current levels of intelligence and everything else um we psychologically have uh, a sense of self and we have uh we give preference to our own actions and events and objects that we find interesting and you know we prioritize certain things based on how they relate to us i, I think that's an ingrained uh psychological aspect of our of our lives um But yeah, I mean, these uh, transhumans who are leagues above us, um, yeah, it's a good question. Would they feel the need to individualize themselves and, you know, have different personalities and everything? Mm -hmm. Would personality still be a thing? Would, uh, you know, like maybe they find it's a much greater benefit if they all sort of amalgamate their consciousnesses together to become this one
1: massive uh, thinking thing. I, I certainly, uh, in, a, in a really dark eldritch way, I reckon it would go that direction, yeah. There, there, was, um, there was a book, uh, Arthur yeah, Arth- C. Clarke, has a book called The Light of Other Days, years ago. I'll, I'll spoil just slightly, where someone cracked um, wormhole technology and you could make these little, I think there they they were only a few, you know, the size of a few molecules. They were tiny, you couldn't see them when you opened a wormhole. And they used them for communication to begin with, blah, blah, blah. Um, I I can't recommend it enough, it's a great book, but at some point, as a little spoiler, um, people start using them to communicate mentally, uh, and there develops this kind of like, um, ah, not subspecies, uh, what's the prefix for like something, a, a species alongside humans then I suppose is a nice way to put it, a paraspecies or something like that, who are constantly permanently telepathic. Um, and they just find it more pleasurable because it, they, they begin to feel like just a single cell among a collection of... I guess in the same way as, you know, we are basically just machines of infinite cooperation. Like, your your body is just... All all these different systems working in tandem that all seem to have their own interests though they aren't probably conscious. Um, these people sort of ended up feeling like that, that each individual was just a sort of... Uh, a part of the whole. And they were quite distressed by the thought of having to go back to being a, a singular... a singular thing, if you like. But... Um, be a bit depressing if we go that way. Parties would be pretty shit in that respect, I suppose, if we did go in that direction. <laughs> but um,
0: yeah, no, just just to bring in some uh some of the stuff I'm studying at the minute. Yeah, um, yeah, please. Do. We're doing a bit of yeah. We're, so we're studying phenomenology, and there's a, a massive emphasis in the phenomenological tradition about empathy and how we relate to other people, mm. and. I'm sure everyone has the experience of when you've been in a particularly shit conversation and it's not really flowing very well. And, you know, the, the <laughs> is other person being that No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you may be fairly self-conscious now. No, of course not. <laughs> no. Okay. So someone's been in a really good conversation <laughs> and everything's flowing really well. And, you know, you're really um, sort of gelling with that other person and you're being expressive and they're being expressive and you can kind of you directly perceive their mental states. And in phenomenology, this is what's called uh, shared interaffectivity. Um, so it's this idea that when you're having a great conversation with someone, you live in this shared space. Oh, cool. And I think there's a sort of qualitative distinction between a good conversation and a really shit conversation. And maybe <laughs> it's the case that one level up from a really great conversation is just something analogous to telepathic communication Yeah, it's, it's you know like, like they wouldn't the be um, to god
1: almost yeah that's really that's cool
0: yeah because obviously there's limits as to what we can express um with our bodies just as there's limits to what we can express with um just our voices we're hearing over the phone and yeah maybe uh, one stage in the transhuman uh ladder is just to completely eradicate all these barriers and just say yeah. look you can you can telepathically communicate you know each other's thoughts
1: well and and uh, first of all, did you say was the second mother inter interaffectivity? I haven't heard that one before yes, oh right on, okay, I have to start yeah. trying to slip that into conversation that sounds ace but um yeah, well, it really it leads back into exactly what we were talking about at the beginning, trying to define this and it that is the ultimate goal of transhumanism, I suppose is to is to throw off our genetic shackles and you would imagine the first one of the first things you would do if you could do that was to was to throw off the the sort of um, the currently immutable barrier that we have between the fact that you and I are relegated to to using um well first of all we 're throwing our voices across space at the speed of light almost which is pretty cool but um I just mean even then if we 're sat in the same room we 'd still have to put everything in in uh, silly m- mouthy word noises, which will always be a barrier and you would imagine if you didn't have to um if you didn 't have to concede to that you wouldn 't i mean it would just be that would be incredible but if you if you did reach ultimate inter affectivity uh, or, or whatever else, um, you would wouldn't you sort of start automatically becoming the same person? I mean, if right now we could, I we could literally just share thoughts directly, which would make for a very weird podcast, I guess. But all the same, you you would basically just become like a kind of meta brain, wouldn't you? Like a kind of meta consciousness. If you're communicating that fast, if you're and if you're communicating that honestly, and if there's no, you know, the division between you know, inner and outer. I feel like that's that's kind of what what you meant with um com, you know um, connection and phenomenology. You that is the beginning. What you're describing sounded like the beginning of becoming a shared mind, almost.
0: Yeah. So there's obviously um, as we're talking now, I can tell you my thoughts, not perfectly because my thoughts are mine and I'm constrained by the limits of my body and my corporeal form. Mm-hmm. Um, however, awful that is, and. <laughs> hey. and yeah so there's something that makes my thoughts mine and your thoughts yours is that they're confined to me and you respectively Mm -hmm. um but yeah if um there could be such a thing as telepathic communication and i have direct access to your thoughts then there wouldn't really be such a thing as you or me that the division between me and you as our respective selves would sort of break down and so yeah, it would be like a meta brain or a hive mind.
1: I reckon, yeah. I, I'm not necessarily advocating it, but yeah, it's it's, and and the the to to stay on phenomenolo- phenomenology for a second as well. The amount of empathy you would have for someone. I mean, empathy seems to be, you know, uncharitably anyway. It seems to be an evolved response to hold the tribe together, to to try and foster, you know, communities. I suppose, and to try and make sure we actually repair each other and don't let each other starve, which would be nice, um, and. Yeah, I, uh, it, presumably it would just foster the most. The, you know, if you could actually, if I if I trod on your foot or or whatever else, and I actually felt the pain at the same time, I probably stopped doing that. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <It's>, it, <laughs> <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. So to to take a bit of a tangent and to put it to our um, philosopher in chief here, uh, to take it in the eth- uh, direction of bioethics or whatever else. Um, if say the the UN or whoever else, if so crispr that is becoming um a pretty hot topic at the moment and genetic modification um potentially growing out of control presumably at some point we're going to all have to sit down and work out a charter for i know there's there are already um you know ethical boards um for this kind of stuff in lots of countries anyway and some not um still presumably at some point we're going to need to get together and agree what's kosher and what isn't kosher when it comes to human genetic modification but I wonder, as the as the moral philosopher, here, if you um if you had some thoughts about um even though we can't predict what we'll be capable of in f- fifty years, we still need to potentially draft the legislation for it and draft the guidelines. What if it with roads we can go down and roads we can't? I wondered if you if you had some thoughts about that.
0: Yeah, um, CRISPR is something that's quite controversial in bioethics. I would say, um, at least from the stuff I've read about it. Mm. Um, there's a massive discussion as to whether CRISPR can actually cure disease. Um, Shit. So we talk about yeah, exactly. Well, not in the um, not in the sense that it it doesn't work, but in the sense of the kind of pretentious philosophical sense of whether it can actually cure disease. Oh. <laughs> um, so there's this question because um, there was that case a while back in China where this scientist um, genetically modified. A human embryos or... to be resist yeah to be resistant to hiv i think it was yeah i think so and um he didn't tell the rest of the scientific community <laughs> and uh the children were born and by all accounts they do seem to be resistant to hiv yeah but there was massive outrage that it, it seems to be a moral line in the sand that we cannot genetically engineer um children sure. because it it does lead into a very slippery slope about uh designer babies and things mm. and perhaps we can have that discussion slightly later on yeah. um yeah but the point i was getting to was that um sorry it wasn't that crispr can't cure disease it was that crispr can't save lives um oh okay so crispr can be used sorry that was my mistake crispr can be used to um kind of swap out um different genes and things like i'm no expert on the technicalities of how it's used but basically uh it, it can alter your dna basically to make you resistant or to take out um perhaps uh genetically inherited diseases and things like this um but the arguments i've read are that crispr can't save lives because or or at least CRISPR isn't the optimal solution for saving
1: lives because there's always the option not to have children. <laughs> well, I was in the back of my mind, I was like, I wonder what's coming next. I was not predicting that. Okay, right. So, yeah. Okay.
0: Well, I, I, when I first read it, I was like, this is a bit strange. <laughs> but it is true because uh, th- there seems to be, uh, from what's reported in the media and everything else, um, that CRISPR is this kind of life saving cure all thing and we can, we can do anything with it. Mm. Exactly. And and it seems like we have a moral imperative to um, eradicate these diseases using CRISPR. Um, so, why not
1: eradicate kids? <laughs> is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, perhaps not eradicate kids, but no, the option is there not to have children. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm probably uh, messing the argument up a little bit, but that was the the basic crux of it. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's whether. Um, i don't really know how well this applies to our transhumanism discussion mm. but i suppose we could condense that down into a question just because we can <laughs> should we
1: uh yeah i maybe maybe i didn't um maybe it's my my brain being small maybe i didn't understand the argument entirely but it, it i felt a bit like you could use the argument not just for disease but for every almost every global problem that if you know Climate change gets to the point where it's just making life on Earth intolerable. That rather than fix, you know, geoengineering fixing the atmosphere or something, you could argue that we could just not have children. Or is there a special case about disease there that I that I didn't didn't get?
0: I think the argument, what the argument's trying to say, or what rather what I'm failing to say.
1: No, no, not at all. No, no. It's this is my my bad, not yours for sure. But
0: but yeah, I think it's it's trying to put across. it seems like will there be a point in the future where it would be morally wrong to not um, upgrade oh, like yeah. an ordinary homo sapiens into something transhuman? Yeah. Because, um, you know, we can hypothetically imagine, um, hopefully we come up with some radical uh, solution to climate change in the future mm. um, and it becomes so easy or mm-hmm. rather it's, it's so easy to be economical and you have to go, out of your way in order to damage the environment <laughs> then it would be morally wrong to do so like yeah. no one would say nowadays it's morally wrong to drive a petrol car mm. perhaps it's not the best thing you could do you could buy a uh, a tesla or something um but it, it's not precisely the most economical for everyone and you wouldn't say to someone who has like uh, a mercedes-benz um you've made a morally corrupt decision
1: yeah kill yourself immediately or whatever yeah sure
0: yeah exactly um but if we look into the future and most all of the cars are electric and they're very eco-friendly and you have to go out of your way in order to buy a gas guzzling yeah. car, yeah. then that would then become a morally wrong decision. And yeah. so to bring this back to our transhuman front, you know, if, it, if there comes a point in the future where pretty much everyone has got some sort of modification that enhances their life to such an amazing degree... Mm. And it's easy to do that. Would it then become morally wrong to not upgrade your children? Say,
1: yeah. I, I was, I was thinking while you're saying this, what might be a? Oh, sorry. I'm just. Hang on, my feline is running riot. Listen, you. What philosophy is not for you? Or well, maybe later. Ciao. <laughs> um. So yeah, I was thinking what where might be the crossover between a moral imperative and a luxury? And like if. CRISPR, or, or let, let's just let's just say CRISPR becomes this miracle technology. I think it is quite messy at the moment, um, but if it became some miracle, miracle technology in the future, and let's say in a really simplistic world, there was a cancer gene, which of course there isn't going to be one, but let's say there was just one, and there was a very easy protocol for snipping it out of um, embryos DNA, embryos DNA, or even getting there before conception, or whatever the process was. You you could imagine a world where it became. Pretty unethical not to do it for your children. That you you might be allowing them to have um, cancer later on in life. If we knew the procedure was safe and blah blah blah, so m- maybe you could argue that was a moral imperative. I think you know if I was going to have children and that was possible, I think I'd i probably get it get it done for them in advance. Hopefully, um, but you could imagine it would change. O- it could change over quite quickly to luxuries becoming moral imperatives. Almost if say enough people who are rich or whatever else, uh, whoever. Um, decided that they wanted, um, you know, uh, eight foot high children or something, and that became the new um, desired aesthetic um, for for humans on the planet. And you could imagine if in in that world, if most people were eight foot or nine foot high or something, you may be doing your child a disservice if you could choose. This this isn't a, in any way a, a, a rant against people who aren't extremely tall or anything like that. I'm not, but I just mean, you could imagine a situation where it became um you know morally difficult not to do that to your kids because you may be setting them up for a lifetime of social difficulty or something so the line get, will get blurry really quickly you know if we start trying to find moral imperatives there
0: yeah i suppose there's the question of uh the distribution of these technologies between yeah. uh, the rich and the poor that we could get onto later mm. um but this problem that you've raised um on, on whether it would be morally wrong not to give your children all the opportunities possible to have a flourishing life Mm. um it's something that's applicable in in our day and age now i mean there's a yeah Yeah. there's there's a I i don't want to get too um bogged down in the ethical details here but there was a case not too long ago um and it was it was very uh vocal on both sides um where this couple um it was a deaf couple and they um they, they got a donation, uh, a sperm donation, um, but they specifically asked that the donation came from uh, a male who was also deaf. Okay. And there was this massive question of whether it was morally wrong for those parents to uh, make their child deaf, obviously, without the child's consent. And was that actually limiting their potential future opportunities? Because their argument was that there was this massive uh capital d deaf culture um that the child wouldn't have had access to that the parents had grown up in obviously they knew everything about um but then on the other side they were saying that well no you're limiting your child's opportunities by making them deaf um they're not going to have access to all the things that most other people would yeah so yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not going to pretend to have any answers on the topic, no, no. but it's not I as guess. if it's something that's just uh, confined to the future. You know, it's a it's a thing that's happening now as well. Yeah,
1: you're absolutely right. You're abs- Yeah, it's it's a current current issue. I, I I saw it in relation to being able to detect Down syndrome early on, and seeing folks who had Down syndrome uh, often replying to this that they had a perfectly sorry being able to detect it early on with um, a developing embryo and being able to abort it early on. And um, folks with Down syndrome replying, uh, well, our quality of life is fine, thanks. Um, are you saying we're we're an an aberration or something? You know, so yeah, it's oh, God knows. I mean, this is it's it's um it's just such a grey moral area. You know, God knows with this one, I don't know. But you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, it isn't it isn't a moral quandary of the future. We've been living with it for ages now already. Yeah, you're quite right. Even I was just thinking, <laughs> uh, even I mean, I remember when I was young that sometimes I'd go over to my friend. Friends' houses and like their parents would be smoking around us, and I don't think anyone would do that now. Should, at least, yeah, I can't I can't think of people doing. I mean, they'd be smoking in in the same room, and that's just considered universally fucked <laughs> fucked up. I think to do around kids in in lots of the world anyway. And that's changed in the space of about a generation, and that seems like a fairly bad way to to. Um, I just meant it as an aside. That seems like a fairly massive disadvantage to give your kids early on, with potential lung problems or whatever. So yeah, this certainly isn't. certainly isn't the problem of the future you're quite right yeah absolutely well maybe i don't know if that leads us on to um anti-aging as well because that seems like that's something pretty pretty connected with that whether we have a moral obligation to to um to try and get there as fast as possible or not do you you got some strong feelings on that one
0: um i don't know this is one of those things i'm really undecided on i don't know if you have any strong opinions on that yourself (laughs) but i you know i'm not aware of any of the uh currently standing debates on anti-aging i know there's uh arguments on both sides i'm not yeah. really certain of what they are i i, but, uh, I, I yeah I what, what I, do you think
1: I, I certainly couldn't do it justice on either side i know which side i'm kind of on but um there's there's one school of thought that i'm pretty sure nick bostrom who we were talking about earlier popularized or at least i didn't see it being quite so um uh talked about before he came up with i think it was i think uh i know the there's one paper one story the the um, Fable of the Dragon Tyrant, but he was doing work on this way before, but that yes. was kind of where it entered popular culture, I think, anyway. um And the argument was that for basically, for as long as we don't spend lots of our resources on killing aging, or at least stopping this being a disease, and one could certainly consider it a disease, and presumably, when we've, if we manage to crack aging and you don't have to die involuntarily from age related diseases, we might look back on aging as a disease. Um, for every day that we don't do this, we're committing kind of an atrocity um, because we're dooming you know hundreds of thousands of people every day to death um so that's that's the argument i think at least one of the arguments on the moral imperative side but if i you know um to put my oar in here and and yeah give a stupid personal take i i for sure i used to go along with that it seemed like a very compelling argument but i think it's even more compelling than just aging i feel like that's a compelling argument for children dying below the poverty line and children dying of uh, diseases that we could I, I, i'm not this isn't a bleeding heart ramp, but i just mean there's so much we could do with um vaccination with um you know uh, starvation and poverty uh, uh, whatever else um, uh, um and waterborne diseases and whatever else i, I feel like there's an argument bigger than that moral imperative goes so much bigger than people living forever or not dying of aging if you know what i mean that like for every day we don't try and cure whatever disease it is aren't we also dooming i mean to be honest i'm, I'm sat here having a a highfalutin Skype conversation with you. I'm not doing anything about this either much, but I just mean, you you could use that argument from both sides is is all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, no, that leads uh, quite well onto this quote I've got here from Alan Shaw. And I think it was a quote um, that was made in response to the Fable of the Dragon Tyrant um, from Nick Bostrom. Mm. And Mm. he says... Life expectancy in eight countries of Southern Africa is less than 40 years, and we must take a little of the responsibility for that. Will we not increase injustice in the world if we succeeded in prolonging our lives into the second century before seeing their lot improved? And yeah, yeah, I I think that's a perfectly valid criticism. Um, Of course, it's good to have such a noble goal as to eradicate aging and to eradicate Mm -hmm. death. I think that's one thing that Nick Bostrom wants to, um, well, they're effectively the same thing Mm. um yes of course it's a good thing to have such a noble goal and to aim so high um but i think it would be a mistake if we didn't start at the ground level and at least get everyone up to the same level you know at least the same level as we can enjoy now sitting here debating these issues about uh, (laughs) children dying in africa you know sitting quite comfortably in our houses and everything yeah um yeah so i think it's the moral question of whether we should is probably a bit further into the future than the moral question of what are we going to do about the stuff that's so wrong about this world right now.
1: Yeah, I I, I was reading just today. Um, this isn't in any way a dig specifically at America. It's just whatever the article I was reading um, just used America as an example um, that I think ten percent of Americans uh, or nine or ten percent I think are technically living in in poverty or about on the the poverty line as. Um, in in the american economy anyway and i was like jesus christ i, I i'm sure the statistics are, are bad all across the world but it just blew me away that i you know i was sat around having a think about what you and i are going to talk about in terms of building the technological godhead and you know putting um, um soft um, hardware in our brains or whatever but that 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 really hit home i just thought you know in a very developed economy and i'm sure it's the same in the uk as well but yeah i the, i suppose what's the the base version of that is yeah we should that we should get our shit together first and make sure everyone's at least on an even playing field and, and being fed, um, you know, isn't going hungry, isn't dying unnecessarily of diseases that are very easily cured. The other, I suppose, I, I wouldn't say this, but I guess the cynical response to that, not not the cynical, I don't know what the charitable name, name of it will be, but I've had this idea sometimes. I've seen the same argument levelled against, you know, things I personally really care about, like going to Mars or building and even la- building a super collider building an even larger version of the large hadron collider you know extending it and you will often hear this argument that hang on we could be using taxpayers money for you know far more humanitarian um you know i just mean you could always use that argument um uh for anything especially for for high and yeah. no- high and noble scientific pursuits uh, what's the what's the joke about if columbus had not that columbus quite achieved the things that he's necessarily um sold on the back of but still uh that you know if columbus had listened to that then we we wouldn't have modern america or you know whatever else blah 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 um yeah i i don't know i don't know but certainly getting everyone in the world at least to a a decent comfortable standard of living if that's economically viable and if we can you know find the the compassion and the the technological know-how to do it that would certainly be very noble yeah yeah indeed
0: i suppose it depends on how uh optimistic or pessimistic you want to look at human nature really yeah um but i like to think that these massive moral questions that we have to ask ourselves um at least they are being asked and i would hope that we give them due consideration and arrive at well what i would call the objectively correct conclusion before yeah. we <laughs> go on and start improving
1: ourselves that's <laughs> the i really that's such a good phrase, the objectively correct conclusion I might start claiming to have that in arguments from now on. That would be, that would be no, you don't understand. I have the, actually, uh, I'm lucky enough to have the objectively correct conclusion here. Yeah, indeed.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, just to um, to focus on something perhaps slightly less depressing, um, <laughs> I would say that there's a reasonable chance that we do manage to um, arrive at some semblance of everyone having the same level, um, you know, to level the playing field and mm. allow everyone on Earth to have the same opportunities at the, at the very uh, base level. Mm. Um, but once we get to that point, um, I think then is the time that we can start seeing all these really interesting advancements in technology. And it's from then and only then that we can start to consider um, ourselves in any case being transhuman. Because, okay. I don't know, I wouldn't be comfortable, and I would hope no one would be comfortable in calling themselves transhuman when there are still people um, that are, you know, so far below them that mm. uh, they don't even have the the chances um, that you do. Yeah,
1: yeah, quite right. Quite right, though. I guess, uh, I, again, I suppose it is a modern problem in the sense of, you know, you and I, um, you know, both got to have university educations and and do whatever you know i was just handed all this stuff in my lap essentially by virtue of of the geographic lottery and again i don't mean it's a bleeding heart ramp but not just transhumanism it's you know something i think about a lot that i you know just basically in the in the right place at the right time and fell out of the right <laughs> the right genitals in the right place you know um and it's it's maybe it's a problem for today as well trying to trying to level this but yeah, I I just I don't know if we wait until we're living in a Star Trek future where we're all on a level playing field before we start reaching for these things or not. I I don't know. Um Yeah, morally with this one. Yeah. Indeed. Um Oh, yeah, no. Actually, I I just I cut the moral rant there, I think. But except that my my um my a friend said something that I've been thinking about for a few years. I think he said it as just a throwaway comment, but it really hit home with me. Um he we were talking about you know if we if we were living in this star trek future what would it actually look like and how would that even work economically and blah 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 and he said we already have the tools to build heaven right we already have the tools to build paradise like they're already to hand and i thought christ you're probably right like the reason why the world is in um why there is such a gap um in um earnings and living standards and whatever else without going down the economic um route there it's not a technological problem at this point you know We already have space stations (laughs) and whatever else, you know, we're doing okay. It's a, it's a, it's a human, it's a, it's a a political problem in a sense. The same way as, you know, we were talking about earlier that there's a reason why we could all be using e-readers. We could all be using, we could all switch to just the the digital equivalent of paper and do everything on a screen, but we don't for political and preference reasons. So, um, yeah, technology may not be the only metric here is all, is I mean.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was going to say was that, um, it does come down to a problem of politics. I mean, I I read a statistic the other day. I don't know how true this is, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, But I think it was something like uh, the money we would need to either um, come up with the vaccines for this pandemic or to protect ourselves against the next pandemic. Mm. God forbid there is no next pandemic, but hypothetically, Mm. um, I think it was something like 3% of the Americans uh, annual military budget. Wow. Something absolutely crazy like that. And, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing, um, like you were talking about with Mars missions, even, um, NASA's new missions to go to the moon. Um, yes, they cost millions and millions of dollars. Um, but stuff like, um, military budgets and other things, which we might not consider, um, so necessary, um, yeah, you know the the size and scale of these things and the interests that people have um yeah it is it's definitely a a political problem that yeah we all need to confront uh before we can move past it
1: well we're, we're i would say on the optimistic side we're certainly giving it a good go i mean there are there are hundreds of thousands millions of humans out there who are giving this and not to include myself in their ranks but i just mean ngos uh charities um startups whatever else people who really are taking this uh seriously and which is i mean that that is the 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 nice side of the coin at least that we're not we really aren't ignoring this one we really are trying to to get ourselves to a place where um you know everyone gets to live with uh dignity food and hopefully access to decent medical care or or whatever else i try to remind myself of that whenever i'm getting a bit low about this is all i mean but yeah
0: yeah i mean you can always uh kind of descend into these stories of uh, that make you really depressed about the current <laughs> political sphere of the world. And yeah. perhaps <laughs> perhaps we're not doing the best we can, but we're doing well. And I, I think we can that goes some way to comfort ourselves. <laughs>
1: well, yeah. And also I can't help commenting that we we went at least over an hour without mentioning uh COVID nineteen, which is I think that's pretty good. I was expecting that to come up way earlier from from one of us, which is quite impressive. But yeah. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, that's that's quite impressive. Well, we should pat ourselves on the back for that. I think that's that's a good day officially, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I think we've been quite thorough on uh, the actual technology that we might utilize in a transhuman society. We've gone a bit into the ethics. Um, and I think we've semi-arrived at the conclusion that it's uh, we have to acknowledge that there are problems in the current world and there are problems that need fixing and addressing. Um, but nonetheless... Um, these questions about transhumanism and what things might look like in the future are things that we need to start considering now so that we're prepared for when they happen, um, if indeed they are going to be an eventuality. So uh, I guess I'll ask you the question, if we look forward to the, the future of mm. uh, society, um, what would this transhuman society look like? What possible things could there be?
1: Yeah, well, the the wonderful part is that we... we um... I suppose we can't, <laughs> it's beyond imagining almost, which is the by, by virtue of having a silly monkey brain at the moment, and I'm sure for the rest of my life. Though um, I always think of the, have you seen these? The, the, they're in the, the, whatever the equivalent of, of sort of, I don't know, Cosmopolitan or Time magazine or whatever at the time was for Victorians. There were lots of fairly famous prints of what they thought the year 2000 would look like um, and what the next millennium would look like. I don't, have you come across these, like with people with them? Um, it's all very steampunk, very yeah, mechanical. like sort of
0: this, um, yeah, like this uh, retro futurism
1: idea. Yeah, yeah, and it's and yeah, there was lots of that in the in the um, in the forties and fifties as well, I think. And it's just amazing how I don't mean this in a disrespectful way towards them, but it's just amazing how wrong they got it because, uh, like the Arthur C. Car- Arthur C. Clarke quote, "Nothing ages faster than the future." I think it was Arthur Clarke who said that and if there's one thing we didn't see coming that we're living in now almost no one saw they they, i think they thought there was going to be a robotics revolution right but what we actually got was a communications revolution and it just goes to show that the 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 future's imagination you know or the the imagination of future generations and the the capriciousness of technology is just off the scale we can't even imagine what's coming so yeah i can guarantee whatever's coming it probably doesn't look like any of our depictions of the future um today though uh it's probably still going to involve computation, and it's probably still going to involve modification. But beyond that, I don't know. How about you? How about you? If you had to, if you had to make a um, a prediction about the next five hundred years, say. Oh,
0: I don't know. It's a difficult question. Yeah, like you no, said, no it's, pressure, it's yeah. beyond our imagining. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about um, the Victorians and and their predictions and speculations about what the future will be like, and and how wrong they were. I mean, you look even uh 10 20 years ago yeah at the back to the future films what they thought um <laughs> the future was going to be like yeah. even at something like blade runner um mm.
1: if that was set wasn't that set now
0: uh, i think blade runner was set in november last year okay. Wow! if memory serves me correctly wow is it that... um yeah, yeah so there's obviously uh these films are works of science fiction and they can afford some liberties um <laughs> But look at how wrong they were um, about even things in such a small time frame.
1: Well, and, and so not, not to interrupt, but just what I'm thinking about. Have you, it, it, you know, there's a movie, um, I was watching a movie, Event Horizon, the other day. Like, terrifying sci-fi movie. And it's set, I don't know, fairly far ahead this century. And um, there's a faster than light starship that they're walking around on. But the, the, I mean, it's laughable now. It wasn't then. But there are memory banks where they u, they're using CD like CDs, right? And I was like, wait, what? Hang on. Yeah. You can go faster light, but, but anyway, sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no, that was that was basically the uh, the point I was trying to make is that even in such a short time frame, um, I don't know when uh, Blade Runner and Back to the Future was released, but they, they still didn't have the predictive power that um, that was required in order to even imagine what the state of the world would be like today and yeah i think one of the one of the potentials of transhumanism is that it's potentially got unlimited scope for improvement and advancement of the human condition mm. and it's sort of built into that idea that we literally cannot imagine what it's going to be like because uh, you know the levels of intelligence they're going to have in that society is so much greater than ours now so mm they might conceivably have completely different ways of even conceptualizing things and thinking about things you we couldn't even begin to imagine what their subjective experience of reality is going to be like
1: yeah well yeah hey brave new worlds and brave new bombs but the the I, I think it's um I don't think it's even a the, the reason why I mentioned these these Victorian prints and just how you know how kind of quaint they are now is because they didn't seem to have technology blindness. I think if you'd explained the internet to them in a very gentle way, they could probably catch on quite quickly, hopefully the same way I hope we can if someone, we were talking to someone 100 years ahead with their technology. But they didn't seem to have technology blindness. They had paradigm blindness because they couldn't conceive of the the paradigm of the information age. And the, the same as, to be honest, you know, I don't think my parents could um, before they had it, you know um so it's almost like it, technology isn't even the limiting factor in trying to imagine ahead it's the just like you were saying it's the it's the paradigm of how people the new technological and new maybe philosophical paradigms of of the next five five hundred years thousand years or whatever i mean you know god knows uh, economically uh politically and technologically just how we might modify our societies if if blockchain comes to fruition you know and and currency goes in that direction if governments let it. If genetic engineering comes to fruition if governments let it, you know. Yeah, God knows what. And also, I mean, uh, I, th- I think you said this, the as well as the subjective experiences of future humans and future whatever else, future cats, I hope, um, it's also the future interests and future preferences for what they might want to build and what they might want to do. Like, travelling to other planets might seem laugh as laughably quaint as you know alchemy seems to us looking back to the the alchemists fooling around with lead or whatever you know so i mean we can't even yeah that's that's all i meant it's, it's it's almost paradigm blindness that we have sitting here in 2020 rather than technological blindness in a way you know
0: yeah exactly um and i just hope to bring it back to a point that we mentioned earlier about um how splitting the atom can either lead to yeah. nuclear power or nuclear warfare i suppose um there's so much potential for greatness, uh, but there's likewise by the uh, same token, there's almost unlimited potential for destruction <laughs> as
1: well. Yeah. Oh, and th- this this could easily be the last century of our species, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I, I hope and I have faith that we choose um, choose the right option and that we've thought out all our options very, very carefully, which is why this is an important discussion to have now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and, and we're quite lucky in that, you know, we're not, we're not unique in this. This is a conversation that's going on, to be honest, in popular culture now, which wasn't that. I mean, futurism did exist. Uh, it has always existed, at least through um, lots of the last century. People were always pontificating about the future, but, like, you see lots of conversations now about, um, you know, even just, not even just, but, like, TED Talks and whatever else about how even you know, AI is potentially a world-killing technology, and on what, with regards to what you just said, I'm so glad that we're actually having these conversations, that we're actually, we're not walking blind into technological alleys where we can do ourselves in, you know? Yeah, precisely. Um,
0: yeah, it's massively important that we have these conversations now, which is, well, one of the reasons that um, I'm so glad we had this conversation on the podcast, just to, in in our own little minor way, just to add to the discussion that's going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, well, wow. yeah. a pleasure as always. Yeah, indeed, man.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's a brilliant place in which to end our conversation.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, well, thank you once again for coming on. I, I really enjoyed this one. Well,
1: no, and thank you, same as last time for and the 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 other last time that uh, we didn't uh, put out for for certain reasons. Um, but yeah, no, thank thank you for yeah. Sorry about that, but thank you for playing consumer host, man. It's um it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you.
0: Oh, the pleasure's all mine. No worries.
1: Can I can I interrogate you about uh anything you're working on that you wanna that you wanna reveal? Um well, I don't want to reveal
0: too much at uh at this stage, but definitely watch um for the one year anniversary of the Mr. Verse channel. There will be some big things coming. Oh
1: wonderful. Okay. Oh well, most exciting. Yeah. All right. Well we'll watch this space for sure.
0: Likewise, um your your book as well. Uh can we ask any questions about yeah, this? Yeah, I, I
1: think last you were kind enough to ask me about this last time and that was months ago and I think I said about another month and um it's been quite a lot more than another month I I just really don't want to fuck it up so I was hoping to get it out for um the end of December and I don't know how realistic that is but December January I will commit to to one of those certainly it's it's I have it as a as a a physical thing on my desk this wad of paper so it is it is a thing but it's just not uh, a very good thing at the, at the moment. So, and I would like <laughs> it to be at least a halfway good thing. So, yeah, that's no, um,
0: well. I'm sure it's going to be cool. fantastic, and I Cheers wish you all that. the best with it.
1: Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, man.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on, and I guess I'll see you until next time. All right. Okay, man. See you, bye.